It's the Fun to Know podcast. On today's show, San Francisco poet David West. In 77, I was still trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do with my life. And I had decided to be gay. It was sort of like a career choice. I had no talent for it, as it turned out. But um, And you kind of have to like men. And I'm kind of not always so good around men. And that's kind of a problem when you're a guy and you want to be gay. So... I just didn't end up having a lot of talent for it, but I tried. I, I will tell you, I tried. I did drag with the girls for a long time, and I joined the, every gay organization I could, and I met Harvey Milk and yelled at him for being a Republican, and, but the, I was just moving to the left really fast, and I kind of outgrew, or didn't outgrow, but moved to the left of the gay movement after, after Harvey died. And um, What was to the left of the gay movement? Communism. I joined the Communist Party for the next eight years. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to writers, musicians, and artists about their life and work. You can find us through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter. You can like our page on Facebook, leave comments for us there, or email us at Podcast. that's always with the numeral two, at gmail.com. And please, someone, leave us a review at iTunes. On today's show, part one of an interview with the revered San Francisco poet David West. The idea of tracking down and interviewing Mr. West was one of my main impetuses for starting the Fun to Know podcast. He was one of those engaging characters you'd never forget. Like Bucky Sinister, whose interview kicked off our first podcast, David West was a prolific participant of the San Francisco spoken word scene of the 1980s and 90s a scene that spawned such memorable writers as Daniel Higgs, Michelle T. and the Sister Spit Collective, Eli Coppola, Beth Lissick, David Lerner, and many more. Week in and week out, David West would bring the reading's volume down to stillness as his gentle voice and his writing brought a ragged range of characters to life, some transcendent and some miserable, but David made them all human and beguiling in their own way. As wise as he was funny, David has slipped away from the world of readings to quietly ponder Shakespeare, politics and the arts while bringing a certain grace as a secretary hiding away in the San Francisco business world. It's been a particular pleasure to produce this episode, recorded in David's Bernal Heights kitchen as the sun and a bottle of red wine slowly disappeared. This episode unfolds like most of the sprawling two-part episodes of Fun to Know. The first part tells David's origin story, traveling from factories in Ohio to an ill-fated stop at Harvard into the mid-70s world of Harvey Milk, San Francisco and beyond. The second part turns from biography to conversation, and David is a fond of insight and humor into people and today's world. Let's head into the interview now, where David will start off a poem inspired by the existential dread that is part and parcel of the life of a secretary. here with David West, a shining light of the San Francisco poetry scene for many years. When I lived here in the 90s, I uh, uh, never enjoyed anything more than when David West would take the mic at uh, poetry happenings. David, would you like to read a poem for us before we start yeah, off here? sure. We can read a poem. Well, we'll see. 
All right, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a tacky story about this poem. I had a job years. I'm a secretary. I had a job years ago, working for architects who are the cheapest bastards in the fucking world, and I had written a poem about filing, and it was up on my cubicle. And the guy who hired us and dealt with the secretarial people, he actually thought I was serious about this poem. He read it at a staff meeting. <laughs> this is called The Secretary Speaks About Filing. In filing, perseverance is never enough. It's not enough to fathom the logic of the file or attain alphabetical bliss. To file, to truly file, to file with your heart. Imagine that the act is universal. Supermarkets file food. Hospitals file the sick. Ghettos and welfare file the unemployed. Cemeteries file the dead. The sky, the most infinite file of all, puts each star where it should be. Dark stars never absorb enough. They are the miscellaneous file. The file that accepts all. The file where you find the moon in your socks. The stars are always moving to make room for new stars. The universe expands to new cabinets. When you understand that the sky itself swells just to house this much boredom, then you can file. You can file till you die. You can file all day and be happy. So when your boss read that, was he shining with glee about that, I guess? He was. He was probably the only one in the room who didn't understand he would be made fun of. So it made it a lot more fun, I'll tell you. <laughs> Dang. That was a long time ago. <laughs> so you came from Ohio. I came from Ohio. Yes. Little town. Little town. Good town to get out of. And... I tried to go to school. I didn't work too good. Where did you try to go to school then? When I was in Ohio, a French teacher, and she said, you, Mr. West, or David, as, and she would, this was all in French while we were doing our little tea and cookies for my $1 a week French lesson after school, which I didn't want to go to. My, my parents made me. And then I ended up really liking her and learning French, and that was cool. But she said I had to go to Harvard. That's where you had to go, you know? And I was like, okay, cool. I'll go to Harvard. So that's what I did. I went to Harvard. And I, you know, they let me, it was, I, I got there. I was like, oh, Christ, I so wanted to get out of Ohio. I wanted want to get out of my parents' house. And two weeks later, I dropped out. It just sucked. I hated these people. They were stuck-up assholes. You know, preppies all the fuck over the place. And, you know, I had worked in factories for years during the money to go to this joint. And they took all my money and they didn't give me shit. They gave me all these grad students who didn't, you know, I thought I was going to get Noam Chomsky and shit like that. Oh, you have to wait till you go to grad school for that, child. <laughs> so, I, you know, I dropped out and ended up in San Francisco. But um, What year was that? I flopped around and then I got to San Francisco and, geez, I think it was 77. 77? 77, yes. I had bought a... A 1953 Renault, and it cost $100, and it came all the way to San Francisco and lasted for three weeks, and that was my last car. Wow. Never had one since. <laughs> what was the city like in 77? Not like this. It was cheap. <laughs> I mean, that was part of it. It was cheap, you know. It, I, you know, when I, I didn't, I wasn't a very urban kid when I got here, and it looked like it looked like, a, you know, a lot of towns I would come to know later in my life in Mexico where they were just poor, you know, go down Mission Street, they were dirty, and those shops looked like they were had seen better days, and they had, actually, you know, and the Mission had not been spiffed up like it was, and, 
you know, I, I came to love the mission over the years, but first day I drove through it, I thought the Great Depression hit hit or something like that. I mean, these people were, they were hard-pressed. Um, and, you know, you could rent, an, I, my first apartment cost me 50 bucks a month. And then I got a two-bedroom apartment for 150 bucks a month that I split with somebody, and, you know, I'm sure that apartment cost, you know, $3,500 a month now. And probably doesn't have a poet living in it. Now, you don't know about that. They, they're mostly gone. Them poets are leaving. They're going over to Oakland. Or, I don't know where they're going, actually. I don't really know where they're going. So, so what adventures did you, did you find yourself in when you, when you first arrived? What was interesting you at a, as a young man in San Francisco in 77? Well, in 77, I was still trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do with my life and and I had had adventures back east, and I had decided to be gay. It was sort of like a career choice. I had no talent for it, as it turned out. But um, And you kind of have to like men, and I'm kind of not always so good around men. And that's kind of a problem when you're a guy and you want to be gay. So I just didn't end up having a lot of talent for it, but I tried. I, I will tell you, I tried. I did drag with the girls for a long time, and... I joined the, every gay organization I could, and I met Harvey Milk and yelled at him for being a Republican. And <laughs> I mean, I just had a big mouth, and you know, I fought with people and had fun with people, and did a lot of poems with these these folks. And it was an interesting scene. You know, that's kind of the first scene I fell into when I got here. Um, and jeez, uh, but the, I was just moving to the left really fast, and I kind of outgrew or didn't outgrow but moved to the left of the gay movement after after Harvey died and um, what was to the left of the gay movement communism yeah I joined the communist party for the next eight years and did you know the things you do when you're a communist I think I read a poem years ago about your uh, spreading communist literature at Hunter's Point yeah yeah just you know it was there was the wisdom of this was all a little sketchy but you know it's it's what we did what, 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 uh, where did you pick up communism? I mean, I guess it's available here in the, the It area. was available back then, you know. I mean, it, it, we had, the 60s, we had done what the 60s did with the anti-war movement, and then came the women's movement and the gay movement, and all kind of behind that, as the Panthers fell apart and shit, there were these, the old Communist Party was falling apart, and there were the bunch of, the mid-70s, bunch of these old, lefties or old anti-war activists were trying to build little parties and so all over the country there were these little new communist parties springing up in different cities and um, I wanted one that wasn't like an old boys club and I managed to get me into a club that was mostly run, a little club, a party that was mostly run by women, mostly gay women and found out that gay women could be just as vicious and difficult as anybody else out of the world. You know, being PC about it did not make them any different than regular old people. And so it was a very difficult eight years, I'd have to say. But I learned things that I would never have learned. I don't think I would ever have been a union organizer. I don't think I would have been walking up and down the street doing electoral organizing or going up and down being so stupid as to be the only white guy for 10 miles around in Bayview Hunters Point going into bars telling them, you know, they ought to... And these old ladies going like... I'm sorry, boy. I don't want to talk about no Mao Zedong today. I'm tired. Don't give me no Jesus neither, because I'm tired. <laughs> so then, you know, I didn't get to the poetry till I was. You just when you need to communism, you just you eat, breathe, and sleep it. 
Yeah. These little parties, they, you know, you get like four hours of sleep a night. What were your fellow travelers like? You mean the people in party? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were an amazing crew of people. There were, some of them were, I mean, there were, we had our share of assholes, but, you know, every group, political group has that, you know. Um, But we had some amazing organizers, really good people. I mean, it was... It was like 79. We had just lost on Prop 13. We had fought that really hard. The left fought Prop 13. What was Prop 13 again? Prop 13 was a bill that the right wing put up that kind of conned people. They said, you know, you're being taxed too hard, so we're going to, when you get your property, you, once you get the, your, your piece of land or your house, it can't be reassessed until you sell it again. Mm-hmm. And so because of Prop 13, which passed, it's... Property taxes are essentially the tax base of a, of a city. All through California now, the cities can't raise enough money to run their municipalities because they can't reassess these homes that are now worth millions and millions of dollars. My building here, the guy who owns this building, which is a four-unit apartment building and worth probably 2 or $3 million, is paying, I think, $1,000 a year property tax is based on an assessment of $48,000, which is what he paid for it way back in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that was part of the real movement that all taxes are bad and all taxes yeah. should be done away with. And yes. Yeah. Yes. And you and, know, with, and all taxes done away with. The, the, un, the unsaid thing is that all uh, social services should be done away with that are <laughs> paid for by taxes. Well, that, that they actually didn't peddle that one really hard because mm-hmm. I don't think they would have got so many people to vote for it. But... Yeah, um, yeah. You know, afterwards, all of a sudden, people found out, you know, taxes pay for your schools and they keep your firefighters going. And, you know, it was a problem. So we were dealing with that. We dealt with it in 79. It was this Nicaraguan revolution. And I was going back and forth and dealing with the Sandinistas and talking to Cubans. And yeah. It's a very exciting time, you know, but it, it was also, you know, I, I started in being a communist in 78. And by the time it was all done, you know. It's very hard to tell we had accomplished anything. We basically had lost absolutely everything we tried to do, really, big time. And, you know, we started. Jimmy Carter was president, and salt, detente, priest talks were on the table, all sorts of stuff. By the time we got out of the party, Ronald Reagan was president, and he was just tearing the shit out of public services all over the country. And, you know, the Republicans were on tear. They would be on a tear well into the 90s. So we lost. And I'm looking back at my life going like, Fuck man, I didn't even sleep for eight years, and I didn't. I didn't get nothing done. I did a lot. Well, that's it's good training for a lefty. That's what, what lefties sort of have to learn how to do. How to lose? How to lose? Yeah, but you know, in a way, that's what a lefty is all about. You're you're on you're trying to stay on the side of the losers, economically speaking. So that's good. It's good training, you know. <laughs> Was there a disillusionment at the end when the... Oh, I'm a cynical motherfucker. I've never actually joined another organization since, yeah. Yeah. You know, it was hard. It was harsh. Yeah, yeah, problems with the party. And parties die hard. They're they're not easy. They don't die easy deaths. Yeah, yeah. People usually... We probably died easier than many of them did, but... Yeah, so that... Kind of I came to poetry just because there was nothing left for me. You know, I had... I've been really sick, and I kind of got better a little bit, and and I did. You, you had a pretty serious sickness at that time. Yes, I could. I spent a couple of years in a wheelchair, um, and kind of got back on my feet and was able to walk again. And walking, it's a big deal. Now, I still remember how big of a deal it is to walk. 
I remember going to the bars in like the mid 80s like just trying to figure out what the fuck the United States had been up to during these eight years when I was out in communist orbit thinking you know the world revolved around other countries and Cuba yeah, and yeah. Sandinistas and, and then the revolution was coming the revolution was coming which boy sure nobody told the revolution that because it sure didn't make it but you know I would go to bars and just like ask people what was going on what did they what were they thinking and they just weren't thinking anything that I thought they were thinking you know and it was kind of good for me you know it was really I had to learn other things about just being a boy you know in a bar you do not walk into a bar and tell a girl hi i just got out of jail and i'm really thirsty that's a bad pickup line you know <laughs> but you know san francisco was a stranger it's kind of a strange place in the mid 80s and but there was things were starting to happen in the world of poetry definitely yeah. did you uh, you know start you know, you started writing at home. I mean, you wrote to go out and read at the readings, or I had been writing. You know, since I was twelve, I had been writing, and I, I had been sending poems out to magazines and stuff. And and it wasn't like any conspiracy. I sucked. That's why they didn't publish me. I was really bad. I was making this mistake that beginning writers tend to make, where. They don't understand that because something happened to them, they think that's what makes it interesting. It happened to me, and I felt this strong thing. You have to make it interesting. It's not going to be intrinsically interesting because it happened to you. That don't work. You know, when you, you go to open my seat, here a million kids read these, these journal entries about what happened to me, and they're really boring. You have to learn how to write them so that other people feel what you felt. I didn't know how to do that, you know, and all of a sudden... I was out of the party, I started going to readings, and I had to listen to myself. I had to hear these terrible poems I've been writing, <laughs> and, and hear how bored people were by them, so that was good, and I had to go home and, and try and write a new kind of poetry, and, and it. I think what I figured out was that what I was good at was not writing poems that worked so well on the page, but writing poems that worked from a microphone. And I ended up writing for that, writing poems that were designed to read to people. Yeah. And there were a lot of poets running around who were kind of like, I don't want to go to those boring bookstore readings where everybody sits there with their hands in their laps and doesn't even laugh at you or nothing. They just, it's just very dull. You know, we wanted to read in bars, where you get a drink and, you know, get laid and do all that kind of stuff. And, and where there was a little blood in the air. So... <laughs> I went out to find those readings, and I did find those readings, and I found poets that I really liked, and was, that kind of got it all going. Where, where did you find those readings then? Uh, well, probably the, the reading that really got me all jazzed up was the Babar. Architects walk through construction sites with dictaphones and read off a punch list of items for the contractor to correct. They say things like, touch up window on east wall. I type many such lists. Today at lunch, I take a dictaphone with me and read off a punch list for God. Ding. The light is yellow and people won't go. I go, they follow, one is almost killed. They should stop following men who mutter into dictaphones, it will only get them in trouble. Ding. 
Two women in yellow dresses and high heels run in the street and talk to a silver-haired man in a jag. He's blocking traffic. He doesn't laugh like a human. He doesn't look like a human. The drawings for this job specify human unless otherwise noted. He should be removed. Rewire the women. Ding! An enormous woman in a bright green dress with the tiniest feet I've ever seen walks the sidewalk like a tightrope. This is pretty. Leave her alone. Ding! Blonde man in short smells flowers over and over like a bee. The flower seller gets nervous. The man in shorts is insane. Soundproof his room. Add flowers daily. Ding! Clouds enter the ground floor of a skyscraper, passing the insane man with a sniff. They take the elevator to the 35th floor, discussing the futures market. I want that elevator bugged. Ding! Outside a travel agency, a man wearing a Hawaiian shirt and a camera looks utterly lost. Dante probably looked like a tourist too at first. Send him a map and a reliable guide to hell. Fat guy in a suit riding a tiny scooter should be equipped with rotary blades to fly over stoplights. A woman outside 101 Cal brought her own folding chair for lunch. She should be repainted mauve. Freshen her drink. Driver in potato chip trucks scribbles and looks at me. We're both writing poems. Give him a good one. Bing. Oriental man in ugly tie wheels a briefcase containing his copy machine equipment. He looks so sad. Send him home in a cab. Bing. Rabbi in a black suit with a tiny yarmulke carries a briefcase, walking by muttering, God, God, are you listening to me? Give him a dedicated line. Bing. Older woman in boots, leather pants, and long white hair rides by on a huge cycle. Her jacket reads valuable antique, accepted as is. Tourists at cable car stops stare at maps of the city and snarl at their kids. They should be quarantined. A woman in a black dress buys the paper. She hears me dictate woman in a black dress buys the paper and laughs. Don't rewire her. Jewelry sellers at Justin Herman Plaza regard passers-by like buzzards watch cows. Very nice job. Bing. The plaza maintenance man is emptying garbage cans. He removes a whiskey bottle for the embrace of an unconscious drunk with such grace. If only you did this kind of work more often. Bing. The woman leaning into her lap and weeping suddenly wipes her eyes and smiles. She's right. It's a great day to get fired. Accepted as is. Bing! Muscled punk with bleached hair flies off a ramp on his skateboard and whirls. He's probably an idiot, but it's a gorgeous stunt. Give him wings for the afternoon and a helmet. Bing! In the next important meeting near here, all executives should be replaced by five-foot pigeons. They should coo. Bing! Young punk on a skateboard is airborne again. I am in awe. Don't touch him with so much as a feather. Bing. School kids stand in line in front of an insurance company. The management of that corporation should line up like those fifth graders and walk around the block every morning, singing the company anthem. These deficiencies should be corrected ASAP unless otherwise noted. The move-in date is over. Clean it up. You read it at the Bad Bar before, didn't you? Oh, I think only once, sort of yeah. at the very end of it. They were old. In your day, they were like old folks. Yeah. That's who came from the Bad Bar. They were like the old folks. And then there were the young folks at the Chameleon and the Paradise, different crews. 
yeah. And um, the Babar was sort of like almost everybody went to the Babar. I mean, Michelle T read the Babar too, not just, you know, yeah. and Jack Hirschman read the Babar. All the old beats would come to the Babar. Jack Michelin would show up really cracked off his yeah, ass. It was a tiny sort of corrugated tin room yes. in the back of the. Uh, yeah, it was store. actually, it had been one room and somebody carved an entire corner out of it and put a corner store in it. So it was a little L wrapped around a corner store. And. Um, the front of it was a jazz bar run by Alvin, who had had a really beautiful little um, kind of jazz club in Detroit. And then he moved his operation to San Francisco and did the Bab Bar. And he had a crew. I mean, he had these old jazz hounds, mostly, yeah. who came there. And, and a lot of poets, old beat poets. And um, that's the front room. The back room was all this, was kind of like the ceiling was mirrors. They had bleachers in there. We could put a hundred people in a room that wasn't much bigger than my apartment, but the bleachers kind of went up to the ceiling, you know, and, and we didn't have a microphone, nothing, nothing. And you just stood in front of the cigarette machine and you read. I'm trying to think of the names of the people who were, who were there pretty regularly. Oh, David, David Lerner. David Lerner was the one of the guiding lights of that place. Bruce Isaacson was there. Julia Vinograd was there. David Gala was there. Eli Coppola was there. Um, Vampire Mike, Danielle Willis, Dominique Lowell, Kathleen Wood, um, Sparrow 13 would come sometimes. Um, and then kind of towards the it, that it's tenure. I got there mid eighties, like eighty seven, I think eighty eight. And it had a press. It had its own little publishing outfit, Zeitgeist Press, that uh, oh. Julian, David Lerner, and uh, Bruce Isaacson ran. Miraculously, it's still in operation. Well, wow. they moved it to Las Vegas, but it's still happening. And um, and then towards that was like. The, mid 80s and then the place must have folded around the mid 90s somewhere 94 95 but towards the end there you could you could hear some of the newer people coming into town like michelle t and bucky bucky sinister and jeez nancy depper yeah it's like yeah that. Uh, exciting place somewhat somewhat raucous it could get a little raw yeah they sometimes if they i mean there was a time when you could I don't know that this lasted forever, but at a certain point, there was, we had a, I think this was Joey Cook's doing. Joey Cook's wonderful poet, he just died a little while ago, but Joey could get a little rambunctious. And Joey threw a, her beer glass at somebody one night because she didn't like their poem, and other people ended up feeling like, oh, that's cool, that's what you do when you don't like a poem, you throw your beer glasses. So then Alvin wouldn't let us have glass in the back room anymore, everybody had to drink beer on these styrofoam cups. And, <laughs> That stopped us from throwing beer glasses pretty quick because the beer is just not so good out of styrofoam cups. You know? But yeah, I was live. I was live. And that's where you, you kind of found your voice as a poet? It was. It, yeah. You know, just I had to listen to myself to the people who were listening to me. And I just had to see what, you know, were they, did it shut them up? Did they laugh? Did they, you know, how did they react at all? You know, and if they're, sometimes if nobody does, if it's completely dead, you did a good job. It means you shot the piss out of them. But a lot of times when it's completely dead, it's because you're boring the crap out of them. You need to learn how the difference between the two. But yeah, I, I had to learn how to listen to me. And, and it was like having a, a testing ground every night. You know, and we, we were really harsh on each other. You had to bring something new in every week. Yeah. You, know, you didn't come in with the poem you'd already read last week. That was bullshit. <laughs> you know, 
you didn't read nobody else's poems. You know, we had this one guy who always come in and read these Robert Frost poems. People would just about cut his head off when he went that. <laughs> we had some other guy, some some grad student who wanted to read these like rhymed lines from his doctoral dissertation about something or other that nobody could understand. He thought he that he lived. I mean, people used to sit around after read talk about mugging him on the way home. <laughs> As bad. So, you know, if they didn't like you, it was not cool. But usually people were pretty tolerant. You had to be really bad. Yeah, yeah. But um, there was also, there were there was cronyism. There was old boy stuff. And there was, there was, I think towards the end, there were poets who felt like the bad bar has their crew. And you, you, if you come in, you're not part of their crew. You're, you're, you're not going to get a feature. They're not going to listen to you even if you're good. And so some of those, Bucky, that was part of the reason he went up, started the chameleon. You know, he just said he went to a punk rock bar and only about four blocks away and, and took the punks with him. Yeah, yeah. And that was an exciting reading. <laughs> Jenny Joseph starts the Paradise Lounge at a rock and roll bar down in Soma. And that was a really good reading for different kind of poetry because it was, for one thing, it had a mic. Yeah. And it had a soundboard. And it was a room where you could actually put something on the... The bartender would drop in music and you could read against the music and they would mix it for you. Shit, that was cool. That was way cool. Because I like to do poems with music. And, and Jennifer Joseph's also very Manic Depressed. So she had Manic Depressed. Exactly. You were reading in front of a publisher too, so that was kind of a, a nice... Uh, yeah, she would publish you. you know? yeah. Jenny, Jenny did a lot of those poets at the Paradise Lounge. And Jenny, like Bruce, somehow has managed to keep her fucking press alive. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. There, she's not bankrupt yet. <laughs> She's in business. So, I don't know. I mean, which of those three readings did you like the best? You went to most of the Paradise, or where'd you go? I went to the Chameleon first, and uh, and, and the Paradise. They were my two regular stops. The Chameleon mm -hmm. was uh, definitely young and rowdy, and yeah. uh, there was a sense that anything could happen there at any moment, kind of. Sometimes did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I even would host occasionally for Bucky. Yeah. When he was away, and one of the one of the, the announcements I remember making at the microphone was that there's a sniper on the roof of the building, and that nobody, you know, the police have come and told us that nobody should leave the building until further notice. <laughs> <laughs> Our next poet is. <laughs> Oy vey. Um, and the, you know there was a, there was always this sort of. Uh, crew of, of uh, very you know uh, impoverished people that would show up there as well yes. you know there was people that were really on the, the fringes of society that would yes. show up there that really gave a, a special feel yeah I mean there were some people just absolutely when they went off their meds they were like a little, little flipped out you know there could be really <laughs> one of those guys got the crap beat out of him he just was I don't remember. It was basically somebody like the bartender. I don't remember how he pissed off the bartender so much. This guy named Cliff. This bartender. Really sweet guy ordinarily. Big old dreads. Big guy. Looked like, I don't know. He was a tough guy. But very sweet. Somehow this poet pissed him the fuck off from the microphone up on the stage. And Cliff, who had been through millions of punk shows with like the dwarves and stuff, like really obnoxious position, jumped over the bar, literally jumped right the fuck over the bar, went up to the bar, and I think it was Cliff who broke the guy's guitar over his head. <laughs> I don't know why. Never, I mean, the guy, I still see that guy. I saw him today. I don't think he can even remember his own name. It was, I mean, he's absolutely crazy, but he would, he, 
yeah, we had, we had that that air about it, you know. If you could, it was always like we used to make jokes about. Well, it's not a joke, but it was like any bar you read in, it was also a bar people drink in. It's their bar, yeah. and they'll come on your poetry night. They did not come to hear your fucking poetry, and they come to drink and they want to talk while they're having their drink with their friends and they don't like anybody going shush this is their bar fuck you you read your stupid poetry go up towards the stage and read your stupid poetry but don't mess with me i'm having a drink here and yeah. we always called them the beast if you could get the beast to listen to you you were doing good you then you had a poem that was worth something you know if, if the beast would shut up or if the beast would heckle you which was always meant they were listening so you could deal with them you know you heckle them back you talk to them you get a little dialogue going then you do your poem and if the poem's any good they actually would shut up <laughs> if they didn't shut up then the poem wasn't any good you know or or they were manic or, you know drunk or whatever but yeah I, I remember being friendly with Lisa Raiden at the time mm -hmm. another poet I read there yeah and uh, she gave me advice on writing poetry her advice was write a poem with the word fart in it you know because <laughs> That, that'll seem to go over at the chameleon if you can come up with a poem that has a part of it. And she was absolutely right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, the thing was, my, I had a friend. I, w I would go to the chameleon kind of more like 93, 94 with my friend Eli Coppola. He's one of the best poets I've ever known. Yeah. But Eli wasn't, was not loud. Eli was a small woman, kind of frail, had muscular dystrophy, had trouble walking, couldn't always get up on the stage. And so people would, but people, first, she, people knew that she was good, and they would shut up. She could get the chameleon to shut up, but that was not easy. But, you know, when Eli was going to read, they would bring the mic down, and the whole club would shut up when she would read a poem, you know. And, yeah. and not many people could get the chameleon do that like hush up and really listen to your shit you know yeah like, yeah i mean i guess the, the community was sort of about you know keeping it real or somebody or whatever yeah, but she was always real you know you yeah. Like, yeah 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 i mean it was also about a bunch of rowdy ass boys who weren't good at listening to girls too so that was also <laughs> remarkable that they listened uh, yeah. to yeah there was there was uh graffiti that went up there at one point sexist poetry reading it wasn't just graffiti it was that was in some ways we can thank the chameleon for Sister Spit that was spawned by Michelle T because Michelle T and Cindy Anderson and a bunch of those early Sister Spit girls would come into the chameleon and the boys would just give them shit. And they felt like it was unjustified shit. I mean, they gave shit to everybody, but it, it, there was kind of this crew of boys who were, uh, there were a few of them who were just obnoxious motherfuckers. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And um, Michelle and Cindy finally just said, oh, well, this is, we don't have to take this noise. We're gonna go do our own fucking reading, and it spawned Sister Spit, which became a really big deal. You know, yeah, yeah. these girls going around the country to places that just hadn't heard any poetry in a long time, let alone a bunch of little punk ass dykes. You know, and that was, Sister Spit is still happening. Yeah, I was teaching high school in probably two thousand three or two thousand four or so, and uh, they there was a, a young woman there who started the. Uh, uh, Gay Straight Alliance mm -hmm. at, at the school, and uh, she was already a, a big fan of Michelle T and Sister oh, Spit, yeah. and was very aware of that that whole that whole scene. Oh, I'm a big fan of Michelle T. I think she's fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah. She, yeah. I mean, she she really grew. I knew her. She was just I think had just turned twenty twenty one when she got to town, and 
and was working on stories and working on she was doing she had done three books of poems that came out when she was reading at the chameleon and that's kind of it she stopped after that doing poetry mostly and and started doing these stories and then um moved into the events that would become the novel valencia but yeah. and started becoming an organizer too you know of the of, of her own community and stuff but yeah, she came here and it was really recognizable the, yeah. the amount of like positive energy she had oh, yeah. coming out of her. Yeah, 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 we really we needed Michelle. It was Michelle, Eli, and I. When we wouldn't go to any other readings, we would go to Sister Spit readings just because they were so fun. They were yeah. fun, you know. <laughs> but it's it's different, you know. I mean, I I don't know. I went to I had a friend, was an anthropologist, and had gone to Chile for a few years, and so I ended up going on to visit her in Chile and doing some readings in Chile because she was at the University Católica in Valparaiso and the guy, one of the poetry professors they had me do, he wanted me to do a radio show and you, you do a radio show, you know this shit, you know and I'm like, but this was a radio show for Radio Católica in Valparaiso in Chile which is a very conservative country and this was back in the early 90s when Pinochet was still in power and there were soldiers on the street corners with machine guns and shit like that and yeah. so I said, sure, Delfo, I'll, I'll do your radio show, but do you want to vet these poems? I mean, I read about, you know, communists and drag queens and, you know, people, stuff. I don't really know that, that you know, one of my poems is all about how the devil talks about everybody gives me a bad rap, but I work for God. He's my boss. Don't blame me. Can I read that on Radio, radio Catholica? And Adolfo said, wherever you want. Give me some poems. I'll translate them for you. We'll do them, on the, do them on the show. So we'll do them in English and Spanish. And I did it. And then, you know, we had a reading that night at the university. And and I said, oh, did you get any trouble from that show, Adolfo, after it aired? He went, David, I told you not to worry about this. It airs at 1 o'clock. That's when they kick off for the soccer game. Nobody listens to our show. Don't worry about it. Only poets ever listen to this day. I thought, okay, that's poetry. I recognize that. This is called The Devil Sings the Blues About His Job. business and your species was new, poverty was just being invented. The nine to five blowjob was still a gleam in the old man's eye, but I could see it coming. I warned Eve, watch your step, God's nasty. She pissed him off, he lost his temper, things got worse. Warning people never does any good, it's depressing, I know I should quit. This is how jobs turn into careers. You end up parking cars into heaven forever and you never get in. That's me, sends a gig. After work, I'm still a nice guy. Dance till dawn, do your weird drugs, have another drink, pick up a trick, wake up in a state of advanced decomposition, I don't care. Burn it while you can. I'm just a bouncer. I weed out the creeps. You take a young jerk, good-looking bucks condo on the hip side of heaven turn him loose in a nightclub with a few designer drugs he's as predictable as Genghis Khan used to be a pleasure to waste zeros like that nowadays I don't even bother 
I used to think I could make heaven out of hell, make a revolution, beat God at his own game, but I never win. Temptation isn't even fun anymore. Besides, my intentions are good. People fuck up, I let them smell brimstone. I put a little monkey on their back. Someone goes down lots of times, I catch them. They think they hit bottom. You all think this is hell, but it's my hand. I'm trying to give you one more chance. This isn't hell. You ain't seen nothing yet. You have orgasms. You shit. You're still breathing. I got you by the scruff of the neck right over the pit. It's a long way down. I haven't dropped you yet. And you keep saying, thank God. God even gets credit for the moon and stars, and frankly, they were accidents. He didn't do that. He's like a rich man who builds factories in the slums. Everyone goes Hosanna. I know. I manage his sleazy operations. You can't imagine what it's like to sit down with this guy and say, Boss, these people are starving. I get lecture about profit. Not enough to go around. Coming from him makes me sick. So please. Don't tell me how evil I am. You don't make the payments, you get evicted. I'm just doing my job. You can sing hallelujah till the house burns down. That's your problem. But don't say I didn't warn you. God means business. This planet's for sale. And you people are in very deep shit. Where did the scene go after after sort of the '90s and that whole that whole time? I mean, did the the, the Breedom slowly close down, or uh... well, that's an interesting question. The San Francisco scene, it, it there were waves of it. You know, there was the Babar from mid '80s to maybe '93, '94, and then the Chameleon. I think went well up into '95, '96 before it folded. Jenny's Paradise Lounge was going on. I don't, when did your reading fold? The Jam My Jam reading must have folded uh, probably in uh, 97 or so, I right. think. Yeah. I think a lot of readings were starting to fold up shop. Somewhere between 97 and 01. Paradise Lounge ended in 01. Yeah. Paradise Lounge, you know why that we had that reading there? Because it was a great venue for a reading, but sure. I'd always wondered, how the fuck did we get that place? We got that place because one of the guys who owned that bar sat and I never knew it. I went to that reading for 12 years and there was always this drunk guy leaning against the wall because I figured he was going to fall down and it turned out he owned the bar. Oh, really? Really liked poetry. And he made sure we got paid and the whole nine yards. Robin, very sweet guy. Um, But that that reading folded in 01 and then, you know, the dot-com boom happened around the late 90s and... The dot-com boom was responsible for the early, really heavy waves of gentrification on rent. And poets, we suck at making money. We just suck at it. So, you know, people start leaving. And, yeah. you know, my audience was gone, mostly, by, by 01, 02. You know, I was still doing little readings around 03, 04. But by and large, the people that I was used to reading to, these little scruffy... So she has drug dealers and, you know, bicycle messengers and, you know, cab drivers and all the things they did to make ends meet. All of those people, you know, and, the, and poets who, you may not think it, but it actually takes time to write your shit. And you, most poets don't work full time. They have these part-time gigs. You can't do that in San Francisco when yeah. your rent is $2,500 a month to $3,000 a month, you know? 
people left. Yeah, yeah. And poets died. Poets really died a lot. You know, it was a big die-off around 2000, uh, between 97 and 01. Lerner died, like Pollitt died, and Frank died. A bunch of people died. Um, Frank. Frank's depression, that guy from the weird little guy from the, the chameleon. That sounds familiar. Jeez, um, I can't even remember who all died. Bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. Bunch of people croaked. Um, we're, we're a mortal bunch. We die easy. You yeah, know? yeah. And, and I think people, poets, we get old and we're not getting paid for this. This yeah. does not pay our rent. It's like knitting. <laughs> and you only there's no there's not like any professional knitters out there. So we're like, it's okay, it's fun when you're young and you go into the reading. You're gonna know everybody, and you know you could run into somebody cute maybe, or something might happen on that department, or somebody might take you out in the alley and get you high, or you know the bartender's gonna know you're gonna drink for free, and all that stuff. That's okay, and it's a community, and you know you 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 kind of know that even if the poetry sucks that particular night. You'll have fun because you'll hang out with people you know, but then you get old and you, you go to readings and you don't know any of the people there and you're not going to get laid and they don't know you and they're not going to give you any free beers and after a while I was too old to drink anyhow. And you know, the word pot was going to pot all of a sudden was like this, this thing that cost like more than your entire paycheck cost. It wasn't like, you know, 50 bucks for a bag of rag or something. It was pricey shit. <laughs> and so you know, just money I think money killed the scene as much as anything wow yeah. I mean not killed it poetry's still happening it's just that scene died yeah, you know? yeah. that scene died there's still readings and it's it's just poetry is is changing it's a dynamic thing yeah you know but where, where have you put your uh, your uh, artistic energies I don't know that I have that many, you know, I mean, I'm a good consumer, I read a lot, I write essays now, I'm trying to figure out what, whether I can do anything, but since I, as a poet, I was, I learned how to write for performance, and there's just not that many scenes, even if I could perform, I don't really want to, because it's not the same anymore for me, I'm not yeah. going to go and with hang out with people I know, people I know are dead, you know, they ain't here no more. Yeah. So it's not like I'm going to look forward to going out and reading this new poem I got or anything. I don't know what to do with myself on that scene. So, And um, and your aesthetic ages, too. I mean, it's I call it the Austin Powers phenomenon. You know, a certain irony crept into the world. And I don't write like that. We wrote earnest shit with our, kind of, let our hearts on our sleeve. And the kids now, they think it's a little corny, you know. I don't blame them. Yeah. But it's it's different when I read to a bunch of kids now in their 20s. I can hear that. I can hear that aesthetic gap between the way I thought about it and the way they think about things. And, and they're a little more restrained. They're, they, they're a little more ironic. You know, they're kind of, it's different. The aesthetics of their scene is different. What do you think is motivating them? I mean, if you've seen these young poets writing, what are, what are they writing about? What are, what are their themes? I think there's, well, I think a lot of these kids are smarter than we were on some level and they just have realized this is that, that if I'm going to do poetry, I'm going to go do it in a world where people actually listen to this shit and they go into music. You know, they go into bands and shit. They don't, 
there is there are scenes still in San Francisco where these kids who come out of MFA programs do their readings and they're fine you know they they like that that's fine I I find it kind of tame but that's it's just you know poetry as a big animal as as an entity as an art form I think if poetry was sentient like could talk to its own practitioners it would say look people you know you had me locked down in monasteries for the Middle Ages, where only people who could read Latin could read me. And then, you know, you finally got your shit together and you did the vernacular, and at least people could read me in Italian or English or something like that, but they still couldn't read. So unless you were Shakespeare doing theater, you know, I mean, they weren't going to get me. And then you kind of get printing presses and people can buy poetry books. It's still for the upper middle class, you know. And then American poets, they start... In the 20th century, you get modernism, and they, they get very abstract. They get hard to understand. Eliot and Pound were like, I don't care if only 100 people read me. That's fine, as long as they're the cool 100 people. But they're, 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 they're writing about things. You have to know who Dante is. You have to know who Cavalcante is. You know, have to know things that most working-class people who are just coming off from work. That, that, that's not what they're going to be having fun with. <laughs> and, you know, I think poetry, if it was sentient, would just say... Look, you little poets, that's fine. You have a good time with that shit. I'm going where people are. I, you know, and poetry figured that out turn of the 20th century. There's music on the radio. I'll go with those people. I'm going to go with the songwriters. I'm going to go with Bessie Smith and Big Mama Thornton and, you know, the rock and roll guys and just the amazing amount of poetry, popular poetry that was coming out as lyrics and then as rap. And I think that's where the young poets are going. You know, they're hip hoppers. Yeah. Hip hop has been such an incredible influence on poetry, and I think it's good because I mean it. It's ironic to a certain extent because it's such an old form. Hip hop is accentual verse. It's it's verse where you only count your beats. You can put as many syllables in your line as possible. You just have to keep within your beats. Yeah. That was the same verse form that Beowulf was written in when they were sitting around in mead hall, stomping their sto- their little spears on the ground, and the guy was hanging out with their beats. That's it's the same form. They just reinvented it, you know, or they re they totally made a new thing out of it. But yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, I remember shit in the butt bar one day. Somebody brought in straight out of Compton. We just lost our shit. Me and David Lerner were just like, "Fuck, man, this is good." It's scary shit, but it's really good. And, you know, I, I still remember hearing, like, Melly Mel and the Meltones in the, in the jungle. That is an amazing poem. That's a great poem. But, you know, I mean, I think poetry is out of the box in a lot of ways. And you have these all these old white people from MFA programs who sit around and bitch about how nobody reads us anymore, you know. Yeah. And they don't because they're mostly boring. And they, they're, they're lucky if people can will buy 3000 copies of an edition. I mean, when you're publishing bestsellers in, in on the New York Times list, 3000 copies is what you that's your promo budget. Those are the free copies you send out. <laughs> 3000 copies is bullshit. You know, in a country of 300 million people, that's 1 1000th of a percent. Yeah. That means nobody likes you. <laughs> but that doesn't mean people don't like poetry. That just means they don't like all these old white farts who are, in, you know, into writing this MFA workshop, abstract, dull stuff. <laughs> Not that all people who are in MFA programs are dull or anything like that. I know some perfectly wonderful people who teach at MFA programs. I better say that or somebody's, I know a number of people are going to come after me with a baseball bat. 
Um, so you said you're you're writing more essays these days. I am. I'm. I'm. It's. I don't know that anybody's ever going to read them, but it makes me go back and look at the poets I really like and why did I like them, and I am kind of tripped out about what has happened to poetry in my lifetime, and you know where is it going to go and and what it's sort of a book like almost like for teenagers like. All right, you know, why is Shakespeare any fun? Why would you ever want to read Dante? He dead, you know, or, you know, who's Li Chang Chao or Tu Fu or Su Pang Po or who are these people and why would you read them and what's the point? Did you hear the story that broke just a few weeks ago about uh, the guy who does that show, This American Life? I know the show. Uh, the the uh, Ira Glass was seeing King Lear with uh, John Lithgow in, okay. the, in the Shakespeare in the Park production yeah. this summer and wrote a tweet like, you know, John Lithgow, great. King Lear, uninvolving. <laughs> <laughs> and he wrote about three t- tweets about, like, why would anybody like Shakespeare? This is not interesting at all. Right. And uh, for, for somebody who's head of a cultural institution, it seemed like a, yeah. a, an odd uh, figure to take with such a little ammunition. <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, shit. I am a huge Shakespeare head. Just amazing. I will buy any film Shakespeare I can get my hands on. Do you have any favorite Shakespeare films? Films? Yeah, yeah. I know my favorite right offhand. God, now that's an interesting list. My favorite would be Polanski's Macbeth, probably. Polanski's Macbeth? Yeah, at the top there. There is, I, you know, I don't even know who did that. It's a Midsummer Night's Dream that I really love that came out of Britain. Um, kind of punky. Um, there's the, they're doing shows at the Globe now that they're taping mm-hmm. and selling DVDs of. And you can see, it's, it's, they're perfectly competent performances. I just saw a, a version of As, um, As You Like It that... The Rosalind was okay. The Cecilia, her girlfriend, was incandescent. I never knew that that was such a good part. And this girl just made it. She was great. I love As You Like It. I mean, it's it's like, it's one of those plays where you just watch these really smart girls with these really stupid guys and you think, they're going to get married at the end of this. This is a marriage made in hell. And we're all supposed to be all happy at the end of it. This is hysterical. <laughs> you know? But, um... I think people, I mean, there are Shakespeare heads like me who look at what it did and stuff. People reinvent it all the time. I think Shakespeare will get reinvented for quite a while to come. Because he was smart. I mean, I, he would be writing screenplays now. He would be doing... Like, He'd be writing long-form television now. Yeah, he, he might be into that. You know, I don't actually, I don't know how much patience he had. Because he had very limited patience with stuff. He would, you know get to the end of the play and you could hear his, his like patience lagging for this shit you know particularly when he got old he was like alright I'm gonna just gonna do this part and this part you job the rest of that shit out cause yeah. I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna write this whole play forget <laughs> I'm rich now I don't have to do this stuff anymore <laughs> but uh, I was just reading a a book by Swinburne who was a crazy guy did you ever read Swinburne? no, no. late romantic yeah roughly at the time of Tennyson Kind of a aristocratic guy, but on the side of like the revolution and the French Revolution and shit like that. Kind of like a Republican, hated monarchs, blah 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 blah. But he loved to offend people. Just absolutely loved it. Straight guy who did his absolute very best to make everybody think he was queer. Um, like to get ripped, shit like that. But he was a great 
well, he was a good critic. And he would look at Shakespeare and say, okay, let's just look at the Romeo and Juliet here. You see him trying to rhyme? He's not very good at rhyming. You can see this little war going on where he finally realizes, this isn't what I do very well. Let's not do that. And then you can see his style getting way better because he stopped carrying this freight that he was trying to do. Like rhyme like everybody else told him, I got to rhyme all the time. I'm not going to do that. And that's an amazing capacity to look stylistically. Swinburne was one of the great rhymers of history. This man wrote in 450 some odd meters. I didn't even know there were 450 meters in English. But this guy <laughs> could do anything. Once he got wound up, he was like a Casio. You know, he could just like go on for 50 pages and some stupid rhyme and not say shit. But he was really, his ear was amazing. And he could do that kind of analysis of, of stuff. But, you know, when Shakespeare gets old and his poetry got a lot better. It got a lot deeper and he would only, he didn't, I got limited patience for the theater. The theater was kind of getting boring a little bit. But you see these speeches, he, he lived for these little speeches he could give and like two noble kinsmen or Henry VIII, the plays people don't know very well, but I would love to see those plays done someday, you know. Yeah. They're, they don't, I'm heard, I'm told they're not great plays theatrically, you know. Lear, I don't know, I just got a Lear, I'm just watching Ian McKellen's Lear. I'm not sold. It's, it's, Lear is not my favorite play. I get I get the guy. Yeah. There's something about Lear that's just, it's a great play, but there, there's points where you're just, you're like, okay, I know you're going to go over the top now. I can hear it coming. The melodrama is going to come. They're going to beat that little tin thing and the lightning and thunder and shit, and this guy's going to just go way over the top. The guy who was recently was talking about, was it Ian McClellan? Somebody was playing Lear, and they asked him if he... If he just walks around and uh, you know memorizes the dialogue in his head all the time, and he said, and he said, well, there's sometimes when I catch myself not going through the script in my head, <laughs> so I, I jump right back on whenever I notice I'm not going over. It. Yeah, I remember one night I had just been to a some Shakespeare production. And I went out with the actors afterward, and I was with a guy I can't remember his name. From ACT, he was a really well-known Shakespearean actor. And I said something about how much I like Shakespeare, and he just went, yeah. He takes a long time to say anything. It's really frustrating. <laughs> That's kind of fun. I have yet to see a good Tempest. Someday I want to see a good Tempest. I love The Tempest. It's a, in some ways, it's a terrible play. There's just no plot, but I love that play. I don't even know why. I think my introduction was trying to figure out what parts of the Tempest were in Forbidden Planet, the uh, sci-fi. There thing. you go. Yeah. There you go. I just watched a Chinese production of Hamlet. Yeah, really? Which, you know, all the language is gone. It's just a story now. Yeah. And there's things about... China's very uptight about certain shit like sex. Very uptight. So, you know, a guy who has Oedipal feelings towards his mom, this is not going to play in China. we got to change that shit. So all sorts of stuff got changed. And it was still a gripping, gripping fucking drama. Yeah. You know, I mean, and it was still, you know, a guy who didn't want to be king and very indecisive. And, you know, the, the, the character problems were all there. They just, they didn't say anything. It was just different. I just saw the Finnish film recently from a Kikor's Maki called uh, A Hamlet Goes Business that resets Hamlet in the, uh, a family-owned shoe factory. Wow, is it good? 
It's 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 very enjoyable. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's 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 not it's it's it strays from the original script. Yeah. Uh, it's really the story, but it starts off when you first meet Hamlet. He's he's come back home and he's in the kitchen talking to uh, to one of the maids and she's preparing a meal and, and he grabs the uh, meat and says, "Ham, let me." <laughs> <laughs> I'm just reading somebody talked about Hamlet where their point was, the point they were making was, you know, if you read Hamlet, you can see the part of Shakespeare that he was really good at writing dramas. Nobody's going to say he wasn't good at dramas, but he loved those speeches. He loved them monologues. You know, yeah, yeah. you could just, there's there's a great show. I don't, have you ever seen Slings and Arrows? No, I haven't. It's a Canadian TV show. It's like a three season, it's a two season thing where they, they go through a little Canadian Shakespearean company doing Hamlet and then Macbeth and, and Lear. For the Hamlet, their problem is that they, they, their sales are flagging. They can't keep the fucking theater alive. And so they hire, they hire an American actor who knows dick about Shakespeare. Just nothing. He's a thriller guy. <laughs> and the actor, the, the director is like gamely trying to teach this kid how to do Hamlet. And he's saying, okay, look, I'm going to break it down to you. There's like, there's seven speeches. And then you just, this is how you're going to get through the play. There's this one, there's this one, there's to be, not to be, and I'll tell you, to be, not to be, here's the problem with to be, not to be. You get to make the big directorial decision here. Does anybody know, does, does Hamlet say that, knowing anybody's listening to him or not? Is he playing to the crowd or is he talking to himself? That is your key decision. Once you know that, you know how to do that scene. <laughs> and he just went through it. It was brilliant. And he actually, the kid, they did a great Hamlet. You know, this kid who had seemed like he was going to fuck this up seriously. It was great. But it's, it's actually one of the best shows about Shakespeare I've ever seen. When I think about legendary uh, Hamlet productions, I, I've always you know, had a curiosity about the uh, Canadian production, I think, in the 90s where Keanu Reeves played Hamlet. I never saw that. Boy, <laughs> to me, that sounds like a death knell for something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like one of the uh, inappropriate performances in it that I oh sort of most curious to see. They had him playing the heavy in um, Much Ado About Nothing that Branagh did. That was just pathetic. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't hate Keanu Reeves. I actually think he's probably decent, decent enough guy, but yeah. don't I mean, make him too fucking Shakespeare. Yeah. That's just bad. I mean, I, mean, I think a casting is everything with an actor, and, and there's certainly uh, uh, roles that you know, would take a, a certain uh, sort of airheaded charm of Keanu Reeves. Yeah. But, but Hamlet, mm. no, not so much. Not so much. You but know. but back you were talking about these essays. I, I still haven't gotten yeah. clear on on what, what what you are writing now and, and how that. Well, there's a bunch of them that are sort of just generic about poetry. Like, why would you do it? What is it about? Why why have people done it? Um, um, there there's stories you can tell kids about. You know, look if you're writing your and it's, it's funny because it's a thing about poetry that kids write it. A lot yeah. of kids write it. When they're teenagers, they write it in their journal. It's saying the world is unjust and everybody hates me and I'm in love and can't get nowhere and I'm blah, 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 blah. But the mystery isn't that they write it. I get why they write it. The mystery is why do they all stop? Something happens around when they turn 20 and they all stop. 
Only us maniacs keep doing this shit. I mean, maybe it's just because they're realistic and they realize this is never going to pay the rent. I don't know. But then, you know, they go off and do other shit that doesn't pay the rent. So I don't know what the problem is with that is. But I just felt like there were the stories of different poets to be told that might be interesting to them. You know, like, you know, why... If you feel like nobody listens to you, how would you like to be Ovid, who pissed off a family values emperor so bad that he banned your work for 200 years and the only reason we read it anymore is because somebody under risked their entire life to hide it in a column in their library, inside some pillar or something. Because if you had it, you got killed. Um, or the only reason we have Sappho, which the medieval church absolutely went after tooth and nail, is because she was popular enough that people stuffed their animals with it, and they dug up these stuffed animals that had Sappho inside them, you know? <laughs> I just think that's kind of cool. Um, you know, or these Chinese guys like Su Tung Po or Tu Fu, who, you know, they just were a little too honest for their own good, and they told the emperor shit that the emperor didn't want here. And... The emperor didn't like you. You didn't get in the imperial anthologies, and you might go a couple of centuries before you got read again. You know, there was a, a poet named Po Chuai who would like make fifteen or twenty copies of his book, his poem, his books every time he finished a collection, and send them all over China just in hopes that somebody would put it in their basement <laughs> and save it. Because otherwise, he was dead. He figured out nobody's ever going to read me. You know, I'm not going to make it through history. Um, and it just it, it tortures me a little bit that there were so many great poets who didn't make it through history because they never published because they read in bars because they made up songs because they there was always a tradition of popular culture all through the medieval era all through the you know romantic era people who were doing their own shit in bars but it was verbal yeah. it was not until the advent of you know the wire recording I mean the first poet that we whose voice we can hear is Walt Whitman on a little wire recording. You could hear his voice, a little tiny clip. He sounds like a Brooklyn bricklayer. But you know, once that happened, all of a sudden literacy's grip on culture is broken. And you can hear these people. You can I I've I've said it a million times. I used to just yell at Michelle, please videotape this shit. You're going to be so sorry when you're an old girl sitting around in your nursing home that you didn't videotape these sister spit gigs because they're great, but they're very perishable. This is a kind of culture that doesn't get taken seriously. Yeah. And we don't document it. You know, I so wish I'd have taped a lot of those Paradise Lounge Babar readings. You know? Yeah, yeah. It would be amazing to sit down tonight and listen to uh, oh. an hour and a half of those people reading. Oh, I mean, one of my favorite poets from the Babar is named Danny Higgs. Do you remember Danny Higgs? Remember the name again? I can't remember exactly. Just the front man for a band called Lungfish. Oh, Baltimore. Absolutely, yeah. And he was also, as a poet, I never heard anybody like him. He changed the way I wrote after I heard him. I just yeah. didn't write the same way again. And um, he would come, and when he read, I mean, people would just the word would go out. I mean, even at the Babar, where we weren't very respectful of anybody, the word would be like, "Hey, Danny's." And people would shut up. People would come out, of the, pour out of the bathroom. They'd be, people would be saying, "Get out of here!" From the front of the bar, and they'd come in from the front of the bar and go into the back. And and I, I have like one of those readings taped. One, yeah, yeah. you know, 
And I remember one night, he had been given us pieces of this poem. It ended up being called The Exploding Parable. One of the, I think it's one of the great American poems of the 20th century. It's a great poem. And finally one night, he was going to read us the whole thing at this little place called the Cafe Bino on, <laughs> on uh, Mission Street. And he did. And the room was almost all poets. I mean, and we've been waiting for this thing. And it was, I mean, we were, I mean, I think the applause went on for like 15 minutes. You couldn't even hear anything. It was that wild. It was that, David Lerner just kept being like a fucking cheerleader going, yeah, fuck me, yeah. <laughs> and, but we, then we went across the street and half of us were just sitting there getting, drinking a little too much going like, I might as well just quit. I couldn't do that. I can't do that. I can never do something that good, you know. And there, there, I, that's always kind of one of the ways I've looked at poets. And I've written about this a little bit in these essays. Like, you didn't have to write great poems every night. If you ever did one of those poems for me, you were, you were in my pantheon. I would, you, I would forgive you for anything, including being drunk or stoned or, you know, on the nod or ripping me off for money or whatever. If you had done one of those great poems, just one. You know, but they were so transient. They were so fragile, and a lot of times they only got read one time in one bar, one you know, and then that's it. You know, the poet lost interest in it or went on to new poems or whatever. But if you actually were there and recorded that night, you had something pretty special. You know, yeah. you know. I remember. You know, it was I think David Lerner had this poem. He read a lot. It was not one of those poems that only get read once, but it's called Mein Kampf. And he was saying, you know, I'm sorry, but people get, have this thing about poetry being like this, just, oh, it's so wonderful. Oh, it's so cool. And, you know, he said, I'm sorry. As far as I'm concerned, poetry is not a beautiful, retarded child that you sit on your knee. We want to throw the little fucker off a cliff into some really cold water and see if he can swim. <laughs> And I, that's, I think that's kind of what we were trying to do, was just see if we can get poems that worked in some setting that wasn't literary, that wasn't a little waiting pool, that wasn't protected, that wasn't a university where everybody's going to be nice to you. you know, I mean, there's the, one of the problems with the university setting, where they pay you to write poems, is also that there's some shit you're not supposed to say anymore. Yeah, yeah. They don't want you to say this for the University of Pittsburgh Press, you know? And they're, they're, if you look at the 20th century, the poets who, after maybe the 50s, worked outside of that arena, us a different kind of work. They, did a diff they had a different audience, and they were, you know, the, the class content of what they were doing was different, but poetry was, was very busily digging in its own grave. It was not writing about how do I earn rent. It was not writing about, I can't afford my health insurance. It was not writing about, I'm going to kill my boss. Like, next week, I'm going to kill that asshole. <laughs> it, it wasn't, you know, my tits are sagging and my husband won't fuck me. It was none of that stuff was in the poems. Would you mind reading another poem? Sure. Where the light goes out on us completely? Yeah. I'm just trying to think of what would be a good kind of poem here. That is a nasty little poem. I don't think about it. <laughs> um, geez, it's funny. All these poems, poems get old. They get older than their poets. 
<laughs> and then you go back and you think, oh, I'm going to read that. And it just doesn't seem to work so well anymore. And you think, what the hell happened to this poem? And then you think, well, it got old, just like me. This is called Death to the Blondes. Maybe it started with the dirty blonde jokes. Bob blonde punks with an attitude. One Marilyn Monroe after another who was too damn good for the likes of us. People started to talk like the problem was blondes. It really was the blondes. At first they picked on women, then they trashed the men who screwed everything that moved. Those blonde, blue-eyed, too good to believe in, six-foot-tall, lean, inexhaustible blonde machines. Before we knew it, there were billboards up, TV commercials, down with the blondes. Politicians making speeches like they're not fucked up because they're blonde. They're blonde because they fucked up, like they took too many drugs or something. Get them out of here. They might be contagious. Every day we heard on the radio how they wormed their ways into our genes. First they made them wear a yellow ribbon. Soon blondes were getting busted and sent to camps. Brunettes and blonde shirts, redheads with clubs. People with white hair scared to go out. My sister-in-law, she got light brown hair. They're always checking her papers. And she's out there turning them in every day. They put them in the wagon and they never come back. My sister-in-law says things are better now. Feel safer going out. Nobody steals your boyfriend. But I miss them. The bottom blondes too. I almost miss them more. That's why I'm going to bleach my hair. I want to know where they went. <laughs> oh. One, two, three, four. That's it for today's show. Check back in one week for part two, and you can still find David's book through the magic of the internet. Look for Evil Spirits and Their Secretaries through Zygite Press, Algae for the Old Stud through Manic Deep Press, and if you're in tune with the stars, you might find my favorite, You Only Get This Lucky Once, from the defunct Apathy Press Poets. Catch past episodes of Fun to Know at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Catch me spinning Jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST on WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at Falker.com and check back soon for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.